Beyond Belief Sobriety is a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Well, hello, and thank you for spending some of your time here today. In this episode, you'll meet Amy Willis, a sobriety and mindset coach who's been working professionally in the recovery space for more than three years. She struggled with alcohol addiction for more than 15 years and has been sober now for the past six. She's given a lot of thought to issues that women and LGBTQ people face in recovery and what feeds the overall culture that normalizes drinking. But before we get started, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult. And our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or loved one, Soberlink can help. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity, has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and sends results directly to your specified contacts, so there's no questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive $50 off promo code by visiting Soberlink.com slash BBS. And now, episode 284, my conversation with Amy Willis. I personally dealt with a pretty severe alcohol addiction for more than 15 years. I've now been sober for more than six years. And I also grew up in a home where my dad struggled with alcohol addiction and that ended his life early and he ended up passing away as a result of that. So the work is deeply personal and deeply meaningful for me. And finding my way to sobriety was not only life-saving, but life-changing. And it's been one of the most powerful decisions I've made and my life has changed so drastically. And I've always had within me a call to support other people. And through my own experiences and struggles and knowing that there were lots of other people out there who could use the support, I wanted to be that person to support folks who want that support. Um, So I decided to go the the path of coaching. Um, And so I got some training. I, you know, did a deep dive into addiction and recovery and, and holistic healing, which is really how I go about the work that I do. Um, and the mindset piece is just to acknowledge that so much of what we experience in our worlds and in our lives are based around how we think about things and, and what we believe to be true about ourselves and about other people and about the role that alcohol plays in our lives. And that's really a foundational piece of how I work with people. And so I wanted to include that in the title. Well, that's great. I really like the the um, movement that we've had over the last several years now of recovery coaches and peer support specialists that are helping those of us who 
need the help and uh, the encouragement to reach our recovery goals. And it's something that um, I don't think I saw a lot of it like seven or eight years ago. And it's nice to have access to this type of help now, Um, even for people that are just kind of wondering if maybe they might need to make a change, you know, and, and a recovery coach is a great place to go to find out, well, what do you want? You know, what do you want from your, your life? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I agree. Um, I have seen a lot of, you know, coaches, yes, in the recovery space, but also just other options that didn't really even exist when I was thinking about getting sober six years ago. And it's really wonderful to see because, you know, as we all arrive to our addictions in our own unique ways, I think our needs within the recovery space and with our recovery within our recovery journeys are also really unique. And so there isn't ever going to be a one size fits all model that works well for everyone. So I think options are really great. That is so true. That is so true. And it's something that I I have come to embrace after um, I, I went through some training for to become a peer support specialist in Missouri and they are all about, you know, helping people find their own path and meeting people where they are. And I think that we're kind of fortunate nowadays that, um, especially since COVID, more people are finding their resources online. Uh, they're finding their communities online. And there has been a growth in uh, different types of recovery communities and um, peer support groups. Um, you know, like Life Ring, I know, has grown tremendously uh, there are all kinds of different options now that people can access that we didn't have really pre-COVID. It's like COVID was not a good thing for addiction at all. Um, a lot of people suffered, but it um, also the recovery community was really resilient with how they they handled that. Yep, I agree. I agree. And uh, COVID, what a time. Um, yeah, uh, I I also think the the recovery community was really resilient and really adapted and tried to pivot in in creative ways um, and I think that is only going to serve to benefit us. So I think that what you do is a little unique from from what I've seen other recovery coaches do. I mean, you've got some you've got. Um, you do some things that I, first of all, I never heard of before <laughs> and I learned about. So I'm, I'm interested in learning more about those. Uh, but you have like, I wonder if you can kind of go through your approach of what you basically do. I know that you have like four basic tenants that you you cover as part of your program. I wonder if you can talk about that in, in, in a little bit of detail so that we can understand exactly what's involved with if someone should approach you as, as your, as their coach. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, I really try to take a holistic approach when I'm working with somebody because, you know, obviously everybody who comes to me for the most part is dealing with their relationship to alcohol and underneath all of that are all the other issues that maybe prompted alcohol to come into their life in a way that maybe seemed like a solution to some of those problems. And so, Um, we deal with obviously the relationship to alcohol, but we also deal with everything else. And so, you know, for example, every single client that I work with, we do a lot of work on boundaries and it's never something that somebody comes to me recognizing that they have an issue with, um, or maybe not an issue with, but maybe an area they need to, um, 
fortify a little. Um, and so, you know, it really is important to address all the whole person in the process. And so when I think about my coaching practice, there are, I would say, four main pillars of the work that I do with people. So the first is radical honesty. So first and foremost, we need to learn to get really honest with ourselves and we need to be in that practice of honesty. Uh, So this could be how we feel about something, what we actually want. If we are deeply unhappy in our lives, actually naming that and having the courage to stand in that truth and make the change, Um, whether it's resentments, whether it's needs that haven't been met and voicing those needs and asking, you know, for what we want and what we need in our lives. I think Radical honesty is vital and it becomes really challenging, if not impossible, to create the change you're looking for if you're not yet at a place where you can be deeply honest with yourself. So that's a practice that we cultivate. Early on in, so when I got sober, it was a long time ago, it was like 34 years ago, and all, all that existed was AA meetings and smoky rooms, right? And one of the things that they would tell me is, I gotta be honest. And what scared me is my denial. When, when, I, when, I, when I finally acknowledged that I needed help, I was stunned that I didn't know, I, didn't, I couldn't realize it earlier. It's like, I, it's like I, that denial scared me. And I thought, I thought, I can't be honest. I've been lying to myself for years, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, first, congratulations on 34 Thank years you. of sobriety. That's amazing. That's, crazy, yeah. <laughs> That's so great. That's like most of my lifetime. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, but uh, yeah, so, it, you know, it becomes really hard to to make those changes when we can't go there ourselves. And whether it's denial or guilt or shame or whatever it is, like those are really big feelings to deal with and to work through. And I think part of how I support clients in that is just recognizing that whatever the truth is, you can deal with it. You can sit in it. You can be okay with it. You can practice self-compassion. You can practice forgiveness. And without the truth, there's really no movement. So it's not really optional. And not everyone's willing to go there or or ready to go there. And that's okay. It's a process. Um, But I do think it's a, a really vital piece of the work. Yeah. Um, so radical honesty is one piece of it. Um, as I mentioned before, the, the piece about mindset transformation. So essentially, you know, we spend a lot of time tackling our thoughts, how we think about things, the things that we believe to be true, whether that's about ourselves, other people, the world, the role alcohol plays in our lives. Um, beliefs and thoughts are tremendously powerful. They shape our experiences, how we move through the world, our actions, our behaviors. And in many cases, we have really downloaded a lot from our family of origin, caregivers, society, the people we hang out with when it comes to our beliefs. And so many of those beliefs are so deep-seated that they, we just assume that they are automatically true. And 
anything that is learned can be unlearned. And so it's really vital to take some time and actually examine, like, is this belief true? Do I actually believe that about myself? Do I have do I have objective evidence that tells me that this thing is true? And if not, what feels like a more accurate representation or belief of what's actually true here? And so we spend a lot of time with that because, for example, if you are trying to change your relationship to alcohol and you fundamentally believe that you will never have fun ever again in the absence of alcohol, you won't be able to connect with people. Um, Basically, you'll just be a bore everywhere you go. If you believe that to be true, that's going to be a huge barrier to getting rid of alcohol. Right. And so we actually take time to, to dive into that stuff and actually ask, like, is that true? That is so helpful. Um, it reminds me uh, a lot of what um, Smart Recovery does with CB. They have like these CBT based tools and incredibly helpful that you can you can really stop and think about what you, what your mind is doing, you know, because your mind is going to do things, you know, but you can think about it critically and say, so is this really true? Did this really happen? What What's going on here? You know, and I, I think it's just something that take, takes a lot of practice. Um, it's something, though, I had never grabbed onto until fairly recently, you know? Uh, so, but I find it, I find it really incredible. It, it, it almost empowers you to have control over these crazy thoughts, you know? <laughs> it starts with some the feeling, I think I'm angry or I'm upset or I'm sad or I'm depressed. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, so what happened that caused this? And what's the truth here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in addition to being a coach, I'm also a meditation teacher. And so I have, you know, those skills and tools that I bring into it. And mindfulness-based practices are really helpful with mindset work because it allows us to recognize thoughts as thoughts, not as truth. Um, it gives us the, the time and space to kind of slow things down and actually ask those questions because, um, you know, by virtue of volume alone, depending on who you ask, our brain has anywhere from 60,000, 6,000 to 60,000 thoughts a day. And they all can't be true, right? <laughs> they can't be. And so taking the, taking the time to actually train your brain the way you might train your body at the gym um, can be really helpful to kind of sort and figure out like, what do I actually want to attach on to? What am I going to invest in as true here? So I was in a meditation group once some time ago, and we were all novices. No one knew anything about it. We, I think we had a book um, that, we, that we were using and we were trying. But um, this, is, this is really interesting. So we did have a guy that came to talk to us about meditation before we started getting into it, right? And I never forgot what he said. I found it so helpful. He said, think about your thoughts as clouds in the sky or as leaves drifting through a stream and just watch them go by. And use those thoughts as part of your meditation. And that's what I would do. I, I would just kind of let these, I, it, it was a practice in letting my thoughts go. But everybody else, it seemed, wanted to have no thoughts at all. <laughs> they, 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 they were wanting to meditate and, and find some sort of a state, I guess, where they had no thoughts. I don't even know. Is that even possible? <laughs> So that's one of those misconceptions, I think, about meditation and, and meditation as a practice. But 
it's, you know, people are often concerned that they're not going to be able to like empty their minds. And it's just like, that's not the goal. That's not the goal because your brain is doing what it does, which is think one of many things, right? One of many functions. Um, But the thoughts are constant. The practice, as you say, is about being able to direct your awareness to those thoughts, recognizing that they're thoughts and choosing to engage or choosing to let them flow by. And that, that is the practice. Yes. And I, I mm-hmm. found that very, very, very helpful and still kind of practice that to this day. If, if something happens, if, you know, um, working from home now, I can have a lot of thoughts that come and go and just, I'd say, okay, let it go, let it go, let it go. But yeah, mm-hmm. very helpful. Yeah. Very helpful. And I think that's one of the things that has been most powerful for me in my own recovery journey is learning how to manage those thoughts. And like, like anything else, it's a practice. You it know? is. It's like exercise. You know, it's like if you, what I find is like, I, like I'm not going to the gym right now, but I'll start going again. And when I do, it's like, I start really liking it. I, I think it's really, really good for me. I really like it. And I keep going. I think that med- I think that meditation is kind of like that too. It's like you know you can get out of the habit of doing it, and when and you just kind of just forget about it. But once you start doing it again, and you you start seeing the benefits of it, it's like you're kind of exercising your brain, I guess. Yeah, exactly like that. I think that that's a really helpful analogy for people. And um, why wouldn't we want to strengthen our brains as well, right? I know, and you know. Um, I think that's where a coach could come in handy is just motivating, motivating a person to do that because that has always been my failing is that for whatever reason, I could be very, very good for a period of time, maybe a long period of time of just of doing things that are good for me. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason, I just stop, you know, <laughs> anyway, I could go on and on about that kind of crazy stuff, but, but I just, I just stop for whatever reason, you know, and you know, maybe if I do that, I should maybe go to someone and say, you know what, why did I stop doing this stuff that was good for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely uh, something that might benefit from a little curious exploration. Yeah. Like what was going on there? What yeah. happened? Yeah. It's weird. Anyway. So. <laughs> also, I think very normal, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. Like that, <laughs> that, that's certainly not um, a unique experience. All right. Just, just okay. you. Not, not totally weird. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, or maybe weird and extremely common. Yeah. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So circling back to and kind of a segue, which we just talked about, about, you know, doing something for a really long period of time and then just kind of pausing on it or stopping on it. Um, in terms of how I work with clients, we do a lot around habit change and habit, you know, habits, uh, generally speaking. So, so much of our daily practices and behaviors are habit driven. So again, depending on who you ask, at least 40% of our daily behaviors and actions are habit based. So that's things like brushing your teeth, tying your shoes, making your bed, dressing yourself, making food, right? Like, obviously, we aren't learning how to do those things brand new every single day. And so all of that is, you know, deeply established habits. And so when we're looking to create change in a sustainable way in our lives, looking at our habits is a really important place to go. And that really also speaks to the mindset piece, because our thoughts inform our actions, and then our actions become our habits over time. And so, Again, with, 
my holistic approach to my work, we look at the habit of drinking. We look at all the habits around drinking that are maybe supporting that behavior. Um, and then looking more broadly at other patterns of behavior. So what does it look like when you're trying to quit drinking, but you don't have any uh, habits established around boundaries? Or if you are in the habit of, say, a people-pleasing pattern, how does that impact your choice to quit drinking when everybody around you wants you to drink, right? And so we really look at, you know, everything, all the established behaviors. Um, and then we, we take what we know from habit change theory, which is like really great information. And we learn how habits are built and how habits are taken apart. And we undo the habits that are not in service to us and put new ones in their place that are actually supportive of where my clients want to go. Okay. Mm -hmm. Did we go through all four? <laughs> One more. Okay. <laughs> um, so I do a lot around resiliency. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, that is something that I work on with every single client. I actually have a really great assessment that I do with them, um, at the beginning of our time together and at the end of our time together, just to see how things have changed. And so far, a hundred percent of my clients have improved their resiliency in our time together. And resiliency for me feels really, really important in recovery. Um, you know, essentially I want to support my clients in getting to a place where they feel that they can manage with the tools and skills that they have any challenge that comes in their direction and that they can pull on their own internal resources and their own internal capacity to deal with whatever may come up and not feeling like they need to resort to something external as a coping right. strategy. Yeah. I think you wrote mm -hmm. on your website that you believe that all of your clients have it within them to, to do this. Yes. Yeah. To do this. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I, yeah. I do. Yeah. And we all do. It's just, a, it's just a matter of, of, of tapping into that and we might need help yeah. from other people, but yeah, we yeah. can, we can do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, I think that that's a really important reminder to offer to clients because addiction can make us feel so small and so flawed and broken and not capable. And so I think as a starting point with clients in that, like, you can do this. I believe you can do this. You have what you need and I will help you reconnect to it. I'll help you remember it. I'll help you bolster it, but they already have it in them. And I think that that's just a really important reminder for them after they've dealt with substances. Right. So the one thing that I think there's more than one thing, but, but one thing that really stood out for me that you do that I think is really unique that I've not never heard of really before. And I watched your video about it is the emotional freedom technique or tapping. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in learning yes. more about that. If you could go into that a little bit. Yeah. So I'm also a tapping practitioner. So <laughs> I bring tapping and meditation and, and all of that into my, uh, into my coaching practice. Um, so EFT or tapping is essentially a self-administered holistic healing tool that can support you in essentially rewiring your experience when it comes to stress and your body's stress response. 
Um, so that could be around a trauma event that could be around, um, uh, anger that could be around any number of things, but essentially what you're doing is, um, by stimulating different points on the body. So they're called acupressure points by stimulating those points while also verbalizing the issue at hand, you are essentially sending a signal to your brain to press pause on your fight or flight response. And so the next time you encounter a similar stressor, your body will respond in a more calm and relaxed way. And I'll just, I'll I'll be the first to say it. It looks a little wonky when you see it in practice. Um, When I first read about it in a book, I was like, what is happening? And I closed the book and I put it on the bookcase and I walked away because I didn't understand it. And I thought it was weird and woo woo and all of it. And I have since obviously gone back to it. It was part of my coaching training. I then got additional training and got certified as a practitioner. Um, And I've really, I've really done a deep dive into the science behind it. So um, it's a relatively new modality. It it really sort of uh, came to the forefront in the 1990s. Um, So we are starting to collect a lot of evidence around how effective it is. And they are starting to essentially compare EFT against some of the more established modalities like CBT, for example, which you mentioned earlier. And tapping is is doing very well. Uh, not to say it's beating out CBT, but it's, it's very comparable in terms of its efficacy and long-term results. So they've done a lot of studies so far with EFT on PTSD, anxiety, depression, disordered eating, smoking cessation, and and it's been a a really effective tool for all of those things. And its application is, is quite broad. So what I really like about it is I can teach my clients how to do it because it's self-administered. And once they know how to do it, they then have that tool in their back pocket and they can apply it as needed in their lives um, as a tool to sort of support them in moving through whatever it is they're moving through. Wow. That sounds really, really helpful. And I mean, you, you offer it, but are there many places that 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 person can find that? Um, So there's tons and tons of videos on YouTube. If you were to just type in tapping or. Well, yeah, I've never done it. If I did, I probably would. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and uh, kind of by chance, two of the coaches I've worked with have also been tapping practitioners. So I've been on the receiving end of it, which is also really helpful. And so, yeah, there's lots of resources like on my YouTube channel. I do a lot of uh, they're called like global tapping sessions. So they're just kind of broadly on various topics. So like I have one on self-love, self-trust, forgiveness, boundaries, shame, et cetera. And those can be really helpful for folks. And it can also be really helpful to work one on one with a practitioner because they can really help you tease apart the nuances of whatever the issue is and make it really specific to you and your circumstances. Um, But for anybody who's just kind of interested in dipping their toes in, definitely check out YouTube um, for that. Yeah. Something I like about what I've read from your, and I'll put you a link to your website um, in the show notes, but something I like about what you were, you've written about is when it comes to alcohol and addiction, you're pretty clear that alcohol isn't really good for anybody. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and 
it's like you know when i when i first when i first got help for my drinking it was like you're a unique individual that has this problem with alcohol that other people just don't have and i'm i've come a long ways over the years to where i to where i think i understand this as being more like on a spectrum you know you could be anywhere on the spectrum from really bad to not so bad. And it doesn't matter. You can always kind of address the problem wherever you may be on that spectrum. But I tend to think that everybody, anybody who drinks alcohol will have some, some negative effect from it, in my opinion, but, but it's just somewhere on the spectrum. And maybe for some people, it isn't going to cause problems in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess it depends on how we want to define causes problems, right? Because when we're talking about the substance, it doesn't actually matter who is consuming it. It is still toxic and addictive and causally linked to at least seven different types of cancer, right? So that is inherent in the substance. So that regardless of who's consuming it, all of those things are true. And of course, each of us is an individual in terms of our experiences, the likelihood of developing an addiction is, is nuanced, right? So that is like early exposure, trauma, disconnection, separation in your family unit, other folks in your immediate family who also dealt with substances, like, and all of those factors are unique. And we don't really know when we start messing around with an addictive substance, whether or not it's going to be a problem for us. But yeah, I think it's really important in the conversation to place the blame where it lies, which is on the substance and on the people who make it and sell it to us as harmless and as a solution to what they perceive our issues to be. This is so interesting to me. Okay. So I grew up in I grew up in an era where people smoked all the time. Everywhere you went, they could smoke on the elevators, they could smoke on cars, they could smoke at their desk all the time. It was like normal. It was like the t- the, t- the tobacco company just they just had tons of resources and they could put all this advertising out there. So and the movies and everything. So smoking was just normal, right? But it was killing people, you know? And then society changed and something happened where it's like, no, don't smoke around me. You're going to have to go outside and smoke. You can't smoke at your desk anymore. You can't smoke in the, don't smoke in my car. Society changed a lot. I wonder if we see that happening with alcohol. And if you see a similarity between what was going on with nicotine and what's going on with alcohol, you've, you've written a lot about what you call um, the normative drinking culture, I think, is what is how normative you alcohol normative culture. Alcohol culture. Yeah. 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 Um, so I definitely see a lot of similarities in terms of how cigarettes and, and nicotine and tobacco were all normalized. It was sold to us as harmless, healthy, even, which it, now, knowing what we know, we're like, that's. They had ads of doctors smoking cigarettes. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I think the modern day equivalent in the alcohol space is the number of doctors or healthcare professionals who are paid money 
to say that this thing is not that bad or this thing actually does have a small benefit to your heart um, with without contextualizing that. So, yeah, there might be this tiny benefit. And it also is alongside all these other really, really detrimental risks. But, you know, that isn't a complete conversation. And so it's interesting. I think that we already have the playbook for how to create the change and the lobbyists for big alcohol also have the same playbook and are adjusting accordingly. But yeah, I definitely lots of similarities. And I think we're also starting to see things shift a little bit in terms of how we engage with alcohol. And that feels really helpful. They are. I'm feeling a bit of a responsibility, though, in my workplace to speak up a little bit. I'll tell you why. And this is, and it's not just my workplace, it's other places too. So to get people excited about coming back to the office again after COVID, what my company did and other companies are doing is having um, beer in the office after work. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not great. No, no. <laughs> and I think about, and I'm going to be going on a trip at work And there's going to be alcohol everywhere. They're going to take us out. People are going to drink. Some people are going to drink too much. And they're, and I don't drink. And so I'm, I'm like the outsider, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just so frustrating. And there aren't a lot of, you know, I'll just have a water or a Coke or whatever, you know, (laughs) but, but I, I feel a responsibility and I, I've just not have risen to the occasion to mention to somebody that, you know what, um, do we have to put so much emphasis on alcohol as part of our socializing with each other? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just bugs me. That's yeah. Well, and it should bug you. Yeah. <laughs> like that's a, a very established association, right? Socializing always will include alcohol. And that's one of those things that I think that's like a function of normative alcohol because we've been a normative alcohol culture. Like we've been sold that messaging over and over and over, which is why when somebody opts out of drinking, they're immediately called boring or they are immediately, you know, required to provide some kind of explanation exactly. for exactly. why I they're doing been, that. I have been asked and told, and, you know, why are you not drinking? What's wrong? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, let's, let's take one step back. So what I'm choosing to do by not drinking is I'm choosing to no longer put a toxic, addictive poisonous substance into my body, but because we exist in this world where alcohol has been made normal and harmless, I look like the weirdo. So what about this? When the next time somebody says to you, why aren't you drinking? What about this? Why are you drinking? Why are you? Why are you doing that? I bet you they've never been asked before. And, you know, I think it just kind of like, levels the playing field or like hoist the responsibility back to the person on like, why are you putting this toxic substance into your body? I mean, I could guess, but I would love for them to like think that through or just let that hang in the I air for very a well second. Do that. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking about is, you know, okay, it's such a huge problem. Alcohol use disorder and substance abuse is so huge. Almost every family in America, I'm sure has been affected by it in some way. If not someone in their family, someone they know. So, you know, all these people in the cocktail party, they know someone or that, that has had a serious problem with alcohol. I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's just something I've been thinking about a lot that I just feel 
I've kind of, I, I, I'm not very um, outspoken or open at, at large where I work. I am with a few people in my small little area, but I see the company at large just having this culture that um, seems to think that alcohol is a great way to incentivize people to come together and be <laughs> social. <laughs> anyway, enough said on that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, But I think what's interesting is, and I think that this is also like a function of normative alcohol culture. I think it's very um, manipulative marketing on behalf of alcohol companies and big alcohol, but that drink responsibly message that we all see everywhere, like it's, it's all over the place. I think that that creates a separation between like the people who drink at the cocktail party, but also know that person who really struggled with alcohol addiction. Um, I think that drink responsibly messaging, again, takes the responsibility off of the alcohol companies and manufacturers and puts it onto the individual. And it says, okay, here's this product, be careful. And if you're not careful, it's your fault. And so then all the people who haven't had the misfortune of developing an addiction because of all of these things that happened in their life beforehand that they had no choice in for the most part, they can then look at that person and say, it's that person's fault, right? Because they weren't responsible. They didn't make good choices. They don't have willpower. They're not disciplined. All of that. And that that stigmatizes the problem. It also stigmatizes people that are in recovery as well. That's exactly right. And all of that, none none of that is helpful. And again, like that's really why I talk about alcohol the way I do, because alcohol is the problem, right? Alcohol is the problem. It's not the individual. It's not our fault. Yes, we are people who make choices and all of that, of course, and we are responsible, but we're, we're playing with a loaded gun, not knowing that it's a loaded gun. Right. So you will see almost anyone as a client, but you really specialize with women, right? And, um, and the LGBTQ community. And I wonder if you can talk about some of the unique issues facing that population. Yeah. So I I can sort of separate that. Um, So obviously as a woman and as a queer woman, um, those are the experiences that I know the best and and the most intimately. And so that's really why um, I I work with women and queer folks. Um, But let's, let's just start with queer folks. So, you know, as was my experience um, growing up and coming out, I faced a lot of rejection from my family of origin. I was kicked out when I was 18. And just generally speaking, in a very heteronormative world, anyone who isn't that will likely face discrimination, stigma, microaggressions, macroaggressions, homophobic violence. We also often have, like, because of all those things, more mental health issues that are happening concurrently. And it's just this really interesting, like the average age of coming out is similar to the average age of when people start drinking. And so when we have experienced rejection, discrimination, stigma, et cetera, for just being who we are, and then we go into someplace like a gay bar where we are accepted and celebrated and feel like we're coming home and we found our community. And that space is also tied so heavily to substance use. 
it's a really almost like a tinderbox of like setting us up for additional issues with, with addiction. And so, you know, that's sort of speaks to like how we got there and, and why rates of addiction are, you know, much higher in the queer community compared to the general population or the straight population. Um, and then when it comes to women, I think that there are a lot of different uh, factors at play. I mean, in the same way we live in a, a very heteronormative world, we also live in a very patriarchal world where gender inequalities run rampant. One of the things that I talk a lot about is um, mommy wine culture and how women and mothers in particular are really targeted by alcohol companies, um, you know, like pretty much every one of my clients is a mother and the inequities even that exist within the household structure. And it's, it's not uncommon uh, when it comes to who is doing the household work, who is caring for the children um, on top of an already full-time job and a very full life. Um, it is no wonder that so many women turn to alcohol for relief as a coping strategy, as an opportunity to just numb out for a second. And then when you take that situation and then you add mommy wine culture, which says that alcohol is essential for motherhood and it's totally normal to want to drink to escape your children, it, it really feels like it shouldn't be surprising to anyone that it's, it's an issue for a lot of mothers and, you know, women's drinking has been on the rise for years and no one really seems to be paying attention to it, even though it's, it's a pretty critical situation for a lot of women. That mommy wine culture that was popularized by Hollywood too. I mean, you'd see it on TV and movies. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it just, it just feels, and I'm not a mother, I don't have children, but I, you know, my, many of my friends do it, you know, I see what their lives look like and it just, what mothers actually need is care and support. And instead the alcohol companies have jumped on this as a joke and it's presented as a, as a lighthearted meme. And it's just like, it just feels so offensive and so disrespectful because mothers actually need care and they need like structural change, not a glass of wine, right? We need care. Women need care and they're offered poison. And it just feels like something's not right here. Right. I think it's so cool that you're, you're addressing, you're helping people. You're helping people with um, reaching their recovery goals. But you're also addressing the the cultural problem that that underlies all of this, and I think that's so useful and so helpful to understand the two how they interact. It's not like I can just you know I still have to deal with my own growth and my own you know, my own problems, but it's really good to know what's going on back in the background. You know, yeah, I think so too, and and I think it's really important because. Um, it's very easy with all the messaging that we've been inundated with for the majority of our lives. It's very easy to take it on as a problem that you have created or something that you're failing at. And it's just like, no, no, no. We need to really understand the larger context that we're all operating in and the powerful forces and influences that are at play. 
right? Like alcohol companies do not spend millions of dollars a year on advertising budgets if it wasn't effective. And so I think that that's, it's really important to talk about it and to like situate ourselves within the broader context. So I've seen some promising signs and it's, it's primarily from people much younger than me. But they're looking at alcohol much the way that you are, that, you know what, I just want to make a healthy choice here. You know, I don't need to put a label on myself, you know, sober, curious, whatever. But there are more people that are just questioning their relationship with alcohol. And I love that because they're not waiting for the bottom to fall out, you know. And I think I think there's some promise there. Do you see clients like that that are just that are more in the sober curious range? Um, and and what what what's your take on that? Where do you do you think that there's a promising future <laughs> out there for for this? Yeah, um, yeah. So like you, um, I feel optimistic about it. I think that the sober curious movement is actually really helpful. So to your point. Um, you know, it feels like a much more accessible entry point into the conversation around the role that alcohol plays in your life, right? So it's not the old question of, am I an alcoholic? It's it's the question, and I think that we've evolved past that. And I think people are asking better questions like, is this thing actually working for me? Does it feel good? Does this support the life that I want to be living? Is this propelling me forward or holding me back. And so I think, you know, I really, really love the sober curious movement and all of the things that it's enabled. Um, And I think in addition to, you know, being a sort of easier access point, I also think it's it, it's way more inclusive. It it then it then puts that question or those series of questions on the table for anybody who drinks alcohol, not just the people who are deemed like the problematic drinkers or the alcoholics or whatever, which is like not even a word I use in my work. But you know, it then it then brings alcohol into question in a different way, and I think that that's really helpful. Anytime somebody wants to get curious about their relationship with alcohol, I think that that's excellent. Um, and to answer your other question about people that I see, um, it, it's pretty, it's a pretty broad range. Um, you know, anybody who is interested in exploring their relationship to alcohol and like essentially building a life that they love and, and don't want to escape from, um, I, I am happy to support them in that. Um, and it is a pretty, it is a pretty broad range. Um, it can be, you know, that this thing has been in my life and I've maybe tried to give it up and I'm not even necessarily drinking that much or that often, but it still is lingering. And I, I'm curious about why that is right. And then there's also the folks who do drink a lot, do drink often, um, want to make a change, have no idea how to get there. And so it's, it's pretty broad, but generally speaking, I'm, I'm very happy for anything that, um, invites people to get curious. Sure. So tell me, uh, is there anything that I've left out? Any final thoughts that, that you have that you want to share? Well, I do just want to circle back to what you had said earlier, just about, you know, we all have the capacity 
to create change if we want. I think that that's a really, again, I'm just going to say it again because it feels really important. We do have that capacity to create something different for ourselves, regardless of what's already happened. Um, And it's never too late or too early to make change in your life, right? We don't have to wait till things get much worse before they can get much better. They can just get better if we want that. Um, I think there's this like misconception about I mean, you kind of said just a minute ago about the bottom falling out or like hitting a bottom. And it's just like, we don't, we don't have to wait for something horrendous to happen. You don't have to have a DUI. You don't have to lose your marriage or your job or your home. You can actually, you can actually create that change and you can do something different now if you would like to. Yes. I love that. I love that. I love the empowerment. It's it's really important too, uh, for people to know that. So uh, yeah, thank you so I much agree. for coming on here. I really appreciate it. It's been an interesting conversation. And again, in the show notes, I'll, I'll put a link to your website and all of your social media and so forth so that people can find you. You have done, you've been on so many podcasts. You you, you could probably just be a podcaster yourself. I think I count like 22, 23 episodes that you've been on. So that's, you're pretty good at this. <laughs> Thank you. And thank you very much for having me. It was um, a great conversation. And thank you for the work you're doing. Um, I mean, you mentioned what 280 Mm -hmm. episodes. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Hat tip to you. That's very impressive. Um, And thank you for everything that you're doing for the recovery community. It, it, you know, these conversations matter a lot. Um, And so I think it's really wonderful that you've created a platform for them to happen. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.